Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Good evening and welcome to State Library Victoria. My name is Sarah Slade and I'm the head of Digital Engagement and Collection Services here at the Library. Before we commence, I'd like to acknowledge the Kulin Nation, the tr traditional owners of the land on which we stand and pay my respects to their elders and to the elders of other communities who may be here tonight. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to the policy pitch presented by Grattan Institute and State Library Victoria. I would particularly like to welcome the speakers this evening, John Daly and Sally Warhaft, Grattan Institute members and friends of the library. As always, we're delighted to partner with Grattan Institute to present this series, which we've worked together on since 2014. The library and Grattan Institute are very different organisations that have much in common. Both are driven by big ideas, by the importance of research to answering society's important questions, and of course, both aim to make this knowledge accessible to a broader public. In terms of big issues, 2017 has certainly been a big year and always topical. The policy pitch has reflected this. We've covered issues from the battle against obesity and the need to create better classroom environments to housing affordability, to the rise of populism. Whatever the topic we've been talking about, we've seen engaged audiences all year long, and that includes tonight. We look forward to seeing many of you next year as we continue to present this intriguing and challenging series of discussions. We also hope to see you at many other events and programs that we offer here at the library. To find out more, you can pick up one of our Summer What's On brochures or visit our website. There's always a lot to do. This year, the library is a feature for the City of Melbourne's stunning Christmas projections. So if you'd like to get into the spirit, I encourage you to take a look at the library's facade tonight after this event. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but I've seen it and it's quite stunning. Or you might be interested uh, in attending Mark Pesci's forthcoming lecture, The End of Reality, led by Miagin editor Jonathan Green, which will take place on Tuesday the 12th of December. But now to our discussion this evening. Grattan Institute are launching this year's annual summer reading list for the Prime Minister. The list includes books and articles that play a critical intervention into Australia's public debates and is a must read, not only for the Prime Minister, but for all Australians. It comprises a great selection of reading material for the holidays and I look forward to hearing more about it soon. With that in mind, I'm very pleased to introduce our speakers this evening. Sally Warhaft is a Melbourne broadcaster, writer and former editor of the monthly magazine. She is the author of Well May We Say, The Speeches That Made Australia and the host of the Wheeler Centre's Fifth Estate series. John Daly has been CEO of the Grattan Institute since it was founded eight years ago. He's published extensively on economic reform priorities, budget policy, tax reform, housing affordability and generational inequality. He has worked at the University of Oxford the Victorian Department of Premier and Cabinet, consulting firm McKinsey & Co and ANZ Bank in fields including law, public policy, strategy and finance. So please join me in welcoming John and Sally.
Well, thank you very much, uh, Sarah, for that introduction, and thank you once again to the State Library of Victoria for the chance to use this magnificent venue, uh, which is uh, pretty much perfect for events of this kind, uh, and we're really grateful for the partnership that we've got with the library. Uh, I think both the library and the Grattan uh, Institute are institutions. Uh, we'll doubtless talk at various stages tonight about how important institutions are. Obviously, the library is a little older than Grattan Institute, a little larger, perhaps, uh, and we're very grateful for your support um, uh, through the year and then obviously this evening. Uh, and I too would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet tonight, uh, the Kulin Nation, and acknowledge uh, their elders past and present. Uh, now you can follow tonight's discussion on Twitter if any of uh, the rest of the audience get excited, at Grattan Inst, or at library underscore Vic, uh, or, and uh, the hashtag is hashtag policy pitch, and hopefully that's being projected on the wall uh, to my left. And then, of course, I too have to welcome Sally. Uh, as you will, um, those of you who haven't heard Sally before are about to discover what a treat uh, this is in terms of how having Sally talk about um, books. Uh, I can't think of anyone I would rather talk to about books. It's great to have you here. Oh, that is so delightful, John. And it feels like it's all I do at the moment is talk about books the Prime Minister should be reading. Uh, I've just uh, finished up my work as a judge on the Prime Minister's Prize for Literature uh, in the Australian History and Non-Fiction categories. They were announced on Friday and that involved reading 150 books in those two. And then John rings up and says, hey, want to read six more? <laughs> you want to shove a bit more reading down the Prime Minister's throat? Uh, and I'm so happy to do that, uh, to <laughs> gently recommend, uh, steer him in a way that uh, just might be helpful. And um, look, it is a fantastic uh, pile of books, John. Before we kick off, tell us how you, you know, come up with such a list. Well, well, as I, you, I had nothing to do with it. Uh, well, well, mm. well, as you know, working on tax policy and housing policy and energy policy is, um, you know, the most fun one could possibly have on two legs. Um, <laughs> Uh, and so what we do when we, you know, decide it's really about time that we did some work at Grattan Institute uh, is uh, we have a book club uh, at which we essentially bring forward the books that maybe might make this year's list. Um, various members of Grattan Institute bring their book for this month or maybe two or three and argue about um, why it should be included. Uh, you know, given that we literally go through about 150 books, albeit between us, uh, and I'm afraid we don't read all of them, um, uh, we occasionally argue that a book should go on the list. More often we wound up, wind up, you know, explaining to each other why this book should definitely not go on the list, uh, which is invariably entertaining and we do kind of have to bring those conversations to a close eventually. Um, so we talk about these books, we argue over them, we then um, uh, pick out the ones uh, that meet the criteria we have, which are firstly and lastly, it's got to be a good read. If it's really tedious to read it, no matter how worthy it is, if it's worthy but dull, it does not make the cut. <laughs> it's a Terrific process, and it's lovely to know that at Grattan Institute, you know, you're having a book club uh, as well as everything else that, that you're doing. It's a terrific way to do it. 
Uh, and then we're looking for things that have got something to say one way or another about politics, about policy, about power, um, about the country that we live in and what it, what it means and how it might be governed. Uh, and then we try and obviously get a kind of um, uh, a spread of books that cover different things. Um, one way or another, we gradually winnow it down. Um, and in particular, I have a number of people to help, and I'd like to thank them uh, uh, in particular, um, Lucille um, and Carmela and Owen this year, who um, put a, many, many hours into coming up with a list uh, and then um, putting up with the fact that their chief executive comes in over the top and says, well, that's great, but here's the book I really want, even if you don't like it. <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, so given that, Sally, and you've had the chance to read um, all six books, and thank you for bringing your total up for the last two months to 156. My pleasure. Um, the first of them is Rebecca Huntley's uh, Still Lucky. So what did you make of this? Well, um, I think uh, even if the Prime Minister doesn't have time to read this book, and he should, he should just wave the title in front of his face, you know. <laughs> still lucky, Malcolm. We're all still uh, lucky. Look, uh, Rebecca Huntley's uh, research, um, it's impeccable, and it, 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 it goes back over time. And I think one of the things I really liked about this book is some of the, the longer term comparative studies uh, that she's done. I am not uh, an optimist in the same way Rebecca is. Um, and the subtitle of this book, Why You Should Feel Optimistic About Australia and Its People, it's just I don't share that, that feeling. Um, there, were, there are obviously parts of this book that make me a little less concerned, uh, I suppose. I would have retitled this book. I was thinking about it, um, Still Grateful. <laughs> I, I can see where you're coming from because certainly what I took out of it was that Australians today are not really feeling that lucky. They're feeling that they're much better off than they were 15 or 20 years ago. And they do acknowledge that. Um, and, and I think, as you say, the way that Rebecca draws out this history um, so that you can see that and also the way they talk about things and how that's changed over time, um, you can see how social attitudes have really moved for the better. You can see people acknowledge that they've got more resources than they used to, that they live better than they did. But at the same time, you can see this extraordinary anxiety. Through everything. Yeah. And then the bizarre thing about it is... Um, even though they recognise they've become a lot more prosperous. In many ways, they're more anxious than they were 15 years ago. And uh, the tracking of... I mean, b b the sort of fine tracking on this, where it, it really dates to the GFC, um, and this really strange and interesting sort of anxiety that ebbs and flows for a while, but basically becomes cemented into something that feels a bit like a change in our culture. Um, but but that anxiety that you're talking about is is picked up in this book with with everything with parenting. Um, I mean, the, the, you know, the the chapter on how um, children are, are sort of dealt with and raised and parental guilt and um, it made me feel like we really are quite a sort of child loathing 
uh, country. <laughs> I think it's a little unfair when it, it points out how much time we spend ferrying them, you know, to wherever it might be. Out of guilt and anxiety, though. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but I think one of the fascinating things is that perpetually, or a lot of the time, this guilt and anxiety is about things that we're often wrong about. So, so for me, you know, one of the things that comes through is a, a huge anxiety about work and the security of work and all the rest of it. Now, this, of course, is something that we do study at Grattan Institute. And any way you cut the numbers, more people are in work than they used to be, more work is available, participation rates are up, people are staying in work for longer than they used to. So they, the, for in any given job, the, the, the typical length is longer for a person of a given age. Um, the, on the other hand, they are perpetually reading about the future of work and the insecurity and, you know, the robots are coming. Now, the fact that the robots haven't actually come and the, the fact that when the robots have come, actually other jobs have been created seems to have sort of passed the population by because that's not what they're reading, I think, a lot of the time. And so I think one of the things that's going on here is that people are being told to be anxious and they are. Um, I think that's... That's true, although you're a real optimist too, aren't you, John? I forgot. Uh, see, I think the robots still are coming uh, <laughs> in one form or another. But, but the, the really deep anxiety too, and I think that it, it, it's throughout this book, is the um, attitudes to government. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the, 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 the two things are that um, Rebecca identifies Australians... They want to be governed, you know. We are, and it gets back to that, um, you know, the, the the late and great historian John Hurst's idea that we are a very obedient people, um, and and part of I think the contract of that is we expect to be governed and governed well, and we don't feel like we are being governed well. And for this book, for Malcolm Turnbull, for anybody in Parliament at the moment. Um, that sense of nothing being done into the future, uh, nothing that is taking a long-term view. And you see it in the... I mean, the, the chapter on women, which just starts off with the words, Australian women are exhausted. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, we know we didn't need any research at all uh, to understand that, but the reasons why again, are interested, uh, interesting, and they tap into the lack of long-term... Everybody knows this. Everybody knows that 50%, if we just take this chapter, of Australians are struggling under a weight of an exhaustion that isn't being changed by a parliament that is still vastly men. I was at Parliament House on Friday and I was walking around the, the Great Hall... I mean, it's just, it's all men. There's painting after portrait, after portrait, after photograph. I mean, they are almost all men and it is still far too much that way and the Liberal Party in particular. Um, you can't... People, people want something to happen. Mm. And, and, and I think she does a lovely job of talking about the history of, of attitudes to politicians, the enormous hope that went with Kevin 07... Yes. Uh, and that he was the first person who'd been voted for for a long time. Uh, and then a series of leadership changes that many people didn't quite understand where they were happening, but saw them as evidence that politicians were more interested in each other, basically, than in the public interest. 
Uh, and then, of course, a bit of a wave of hope when Malcolm Turnbull came in, and then a perception that he's not acting out his own personal values, that he's captive to conservative forces in the Liberal Party, uh, and a frustration that politics is not delivering for them. And uh, I think that one thing that does come out of the book very much, um, and is very uh, insightful, is the way that a big part of this anxiety is a belief that the country is doing quite well, We've got a lot to be grateful for. I think that's a lovely retitling. But a, the biggest worry of all, that politics is not going to deliver the policy that we need for the long term. I, I think that is a really great summary. So why don't we move on to um, uh, Michelle de Kretz's um, Life to Come. Uh, so um, we do try and keep a novel on the list, um, apart from anything else the Prime Minister amongst uh, above anyone, uh, works very hard and is entitled to read a novel for pleasure. Um, so, uh, what did you make of the life to come? Well, um, as you will have gathered by now, I don't read very many novels. And, um, and this one threw me, actually. I mean, I love reading novels, I just don't get time to. Um, and this is... Uh, I struggled with this. I mean, I, I love Michelle de Kretz's work. I think she's a remarkable Australian writer, a remarkable writer. Um, but I kind of felt like I wasn't getting it. Uh, and part of that was because I've just, you know, I just come into every, this non-fiction after non-fiction, um, and suddenly it's a book, you know, you want to enjoy a novel. And it didn't give me feelings of joy. It gave me feelings of great irritation about so many characters in it that I just really disliked. <laughs> uh, mainly the one character that actually links all the others together, whose name is is. Pippa, and she's just horrible. You know, <laughs> she's kind of everything you don't like about young people in the world today. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, she's somebody who, you know, as, uh, as Michelle uh, writes, everything needed for greatness except talent. <laughs> she's just this ambitious, pretentious... She's sort of also the perfect progressive, which really irritated me as well. So she's got all the correct views on everything, everything, um, except, except, <laughs> except when they impinge on her happiness. Uh, so she really wants to be a vegetarian deeply, but she likes taking Instagram photos of food more. <laughs> uh, and this is just throughout her, and so you loved it, didn't you? Well, mm. um, I, look. <laughs> I didn't mind the fact that, that some of those things were slightly punctured. Um, I mean, Michelle has a very, very sharp tongue. It does have to be said. And, and, and I enjoy a sharp tongue, which probably explains a lot about my family life. Um, but, uh, I mean, let me give you an example. Um, she's talking about the fact that um, not enough Australian novels are taught in uh, literature classes in our universities. I think Michelle actually has it is in for universities in general, but we'll come back to that. Uh, and uh, they run a survey uh, amongst, um, and they discovered that 86% of English majors had never read an Australian book. Asked to name a contemporary Australian novelist, response were more or less equally divided between that Oscar and Louise guy <laughs> and Stephen King. And most declined to name a novel by Patrick White, although one student re recalled Riders on the Storm. 
Um, but the Liberal government was delighted about this because these results were welcome. They could be blamed on the ousted Labor government. <laughs> Predictably, the national broadcaster, a viper's nest of socialists, tree huggers and ugly barren females, had seized on the survey, exhuming one of its bleeding heart ideologues to moan about funding cuts to education. The flagrant bias of the national broadcaster was a gift to the government's spin doctors, but the survey struck an unexpected chord with the right-wing press. Aussie heritage lost to multiculturalism, broadsheet, was backed up by our classroom shame, tabloid. At this warning, shot from its chief ally, the government acted decisively and the Centre for Australian Literature opened after just five years. <laughs> uh, yeah, she's, she's sharp, isn't she? Um, I mean, the other thing she... I mean, it, it's, a, it's a great critique of our modern urban life. Um, there's no you know, Don Bradman taking fire lap for a walk on the beaches of Gallipoli in <laughs> this book. It's all, um, it's all, in fact, there's a lovely, just a, a one line quote where one of the, one of the characters uh, is invited to a sheep station in Western New South Wales and someone says to him, it's the real Australia out there said Lachlan, as if Sydney were a collective hallucination. Uh, <laughs> and I, 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 I do love that um, about, about looking at our cities and our, our, our urban um, sort of centres. Um, but it's rather like Canberra, this, this book, in that it just involves a whole cast of characters who are desperate to make sense of things, of their lives. Um, and and imagining things being better, I suppose um, that there's something around the corner that's that's always going to be better. And in that sense, there are lots of things in this novel that tap very directly into Rebecca Huntley's work. Yeah, into all of our anxieties. Um, I mean, the structure of the novel is quite interesting. It's a sort of it's essentially about five episodes, and they only link very loosely together through the central character, or rather the binding character, Pippa. She's not even really central. Um, but then for me, I mean, this did worry me slightly, and I kind of went back and read it again, and it's a book that does bear reading twice. Which yes. Is, which is, you know, one of the marks of, I think, a really good novel. And what really struck me second time around was, and it's, you know, it's a bit of a clue in the title, it was a, it was a book about, well, what does it mean to live well? Because as you point out, Pippa lives Badly. I mean, she uses people. Um, she she uses the people around her purely as fodder for her um, books. She, you know, you think that she's doing her a favour, and then you discover that the only reason she cooked you chicken soup when you're feeling um, sick is so that she could blog about it. Um, I mean, it's it's awful. And then the two characters of the last section, um, which is I think almost so perhaps the longest, um, uh, they've met as children in Sri Lanka. Um, uh, one of them has basically been sent away from school, as we ultimately discover, because she became pregnant. She winds up in Australia. The other one, um, uh, her mother dies, her father dies. She winds up basically poverty-stricken. And this friend essentially finds out that she's in trouble and gets her to Australia. And then they live in what you would, you know, 
probably describe as mostly poverty for the rest of their lives. They're not lovers, um, uh, but they live in the same house for the rest of their lives, and they genuinely look after each other. And they genuinely die happy despite all that poverty. And maybe that's kind of the other half of that Rebecca Huntley thing. Um, you know, one of the things she points to in her work is the way that, you know, in the past people perhaps had less but felt under less pressure as well. And, you know, in that sense, maybe we're happier. And maybe that's one of the things that, that this book is pointing to. Um, I'm going to have to read it again because now that I'm talking about it, out loud, I'm, I'm, I'm really going to need to. But I'm also going to have to, to really know whether I agree with you about that's what they've done, that they've lived well and died happy. I, I didn't... Maybe, again, it's your optimistic uh, reading. Uh, I mean, it certainly wasn't miserable, but um, it made me very sad, uh, aspects of the loneliness, particularly that uh, the, the um, Christabel was left with. Yeah, and, and that is sad, um, that she's left um, essentially as Bunny essentially gets dementia and ultimately dies. But... Um, uh, I get your point, though. I mean, I, it, it, it is that compared to where Pippa's heading, uh, which is... I mean, where is she heading? Oh, look, you know, doubtless spending her time ferrying kids to, to the football. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. <laughs> So that probably takes us to uh, the next one, um, uh, which is uh, a little bit more serious. Um, not that a novel isn't very serious, but one that's maybe closer to the core work that Grattan Institute does, The Captured Economy. Um, now, for those of you who are very, very keen spotters of the um, Prime Minister's reading list, um, there was, in fact, a, um, an online article by Stephen Tellers that we had on the PM's reading list about four or five years ago called Kludgeocracy, um, which was actually a fascinating piece about the way that, um, with the very best of intentions, we make things really complicated in policy, and that has costs that are much higher than we imagine. Um, but this is a book that he's written um, with, as it turns out, a friend of his, who's coming from somewhere completely different. Yes. Uh, the captured economy starts with, you know, big surprise here, the game is rigged for the wealthy. Um, what, I, uh, what I really like about this book is that it's, it's written by uh, two authors who are coming from really different uh, political uh, viewpoints. And when you read it, you just realise how lacking that is in Australia, that we probably couldn't get a book up... Um, of this kind uh, in Australia. But um, they argue that the US is in a bipartisan blind spot. So, John, you, you'll be better at explaining what that is. So, so they're interested in the way that um, uh, the left in the US is kind of fascinated about inequality and says it's the job of government to step in and reduce inequality. And the right is fascinated by um, the, the idea that if only government would kind of get out of the way, then um, corporates could make more money uh, and um, uh, everyone would be better off. And what they both miss is that government is simultaneously part of the solution and part of the problem. 
that a lot of that inequality is a consequence of the government intervention. That 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 particularly both large companies and also small you know, companies and, and business people have become very good at getting government to intervene and change the rules so that they do really nicely. And that that is actually a major source of inequality, is that government intervention. Uh, and then secondly, from the right, what we miss out on is the way that um, actually to get an economy to work properly, you do need strong government that sets the rules um, and that doesn't then come back in and rig the rules and that in fact that's quite a lot of what's going on. Um, and what's fascinating about this is that two people from very different perspectives, one a libertarian, one um, a social, social liberal, I mean it's kind of American code for socialist, um, actually come to the same conclusion that what we need here is a lot more government in the public interest, institutions that one way or another minimise or at least reduce the power of vested interests and maximise the power of the public interest. And that's a very different conception of government to that that's kind of held by either side of politics in the United States. Well, I mean, you talk about timeliness of when, right, this couldn't be worse timing, uh, really. I mean, one of the things they're arguing uh, for is to give um, a much better public service in the US that can really uh, look at these issues. But of course, at a time where we've got the precise time where we've got Trump the vulgarian and a bunch of uh, billionaire lobbyists and uh, other people doing almost everything in secret. It's sort of the exact, I mean, it would have been hard enough to have got some of these things seriously talk about, I'd imagine, in the Obama years, wouldn't it? Let alone now. I mean, these guys are a couple of policy wonks in Washington who obviously have decided to write this book instead of kill themselves. <laughs> I, think. Well, I think that's right, but, um, you know, one of the advantages of optimism <laughs> is, is that you imagine that maybe, maybe we can do better, and until you imagine we can do better, chances are you won't. Mm. And, and one of the, um, uh, the, the optimistic advantages of truly dreadful government um, is that often that can be the opportunity to really yes. do better. Yes. Uh, because you create the space for people to, to intervene. How much of uh, this detail in this book on the US economy and the case studies that they use um, applies to Australia? So, short answer is quite a lot. The longer answer is that... Um, one of the key features of the, uh, of the American economy that they kind of start with is the way that it's becoming increasingly concentrated amongst oligopolies, and we've published a piece this week, um, as it so happens, saying that doesn't, in fact, appear to be true of the Australian economy. It has industries that are relatively concentrated, um, but actually not particularly more concentrated than those industries in other countries of a similar size overseas. So um, uh, that bit is a bit different. Um, on the other hand, the increasing uh, and and the increasing inequality of incomes that is very much a feature of the American economy is not true of the Australian economy. It's changed a little bit, but not much. On the other hand, we are seeing a rapid increase in inequality of wealth. Uh, and when you look at the particular industries that they talk about um, being uh, captured, uh, they talk about the finance industry. Um, and I think in particular our superannuation industry is 
or more, more of a point, our superannuation regulation completely captured by the industry. Um, and, and that's partly because on one side of politics, um, you've got a series of, of large banks and, and, and other um, private institutions that have you know, historically always been seen as being more aligned by the um, Liberal Party. On the other side, you've got a whole series of industry super funds that are uh, in any number of ways entwined with the Labor Party. And consequently, it's quite hard um, for politicians of either side of politics, let alone from both sides of politics, to regulate that industry in a way that's ultimately in the public interest as opposed to the producer interest. So that's finance. Then you get intellectual property, um, which has essentially become a game um, for increasing the, the rights of right holders at the expense of the public interest. I mean, we've, uh, you know, the US has, or rather a number of interests in the US have very successfully used trade policy to impose US intellectual property rules on the rest of the world, including Australia. So we, for example, now protect the rights of copyright holders for 70 years after the death of the author. Now, maybe there's a couple of authors who write because they're hoping to make their children rich, although I'm guessing it's not that many of them. The number who write to make their great-grandchildren rich, <laughs> I'm guessing that's pretty small. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and, and you can see that in all sorts of areas of intellectual property, and as they point out, Actually, there's the, the, the actual economic and intellectual case for the um, uh, protections of intellectual property that we've got are quite weak. When you look at, there's any number of areas um, that, where there's no intellectual property protection at all uh, and in which you nevertheless get lots of innovation. Um, uh, so the most obvious of those is actually restaurants. So there's, it's basically impossible to protect a recipe. Um, uh, and yet, we know we have any number of restaurants around Australia that innovate like crazy. Mm. Um, then there's occupational licensing. Um, ask anyone in medicine about how our medical specialties, um, you know, protect what you can and can't do if you are or are not a member of the specialty and protect how easy or more point difficult it is to become um, accredited as a member of the specialty. Uh, and then there's land use planning and the way that that essentially benefits all of the people who already own property uh, at the expense of people who don't. So those are their four case studies and they all apply to Australia in spades. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, when you, you see books like this uh, and you measure them up against the, the, the sort of ongoing mantra that everything's going to be okay with the economy... You know, which, of course, people don't feel that. Whatever the, the numbers are, people are not feeling it. Rebecca Huntley's work um, shows us that. Um, a sense of things can even give you that. Um, I think if you look at the housing problems in Australia at the moment or the sense that the, there's, there's a boom, there's a bubble, it's going to burst, lots and lots of people are saying it, lots and lots of people are writing about it, um, but it doesn't have any correlation with what government says, which is always, no, everything's going to be fine. Everything's just going to be a version of what it has been. And I think um, that's where books like this... I'd, I'd really like to see an Australian version of this book, actually. We're working on it. Are you? No. <laughs> Terrific. Yeah. Mm. So that takes us to burnout. Um, now, you told me... Uh, beforehand, 
that you'd read this quickly. I will confess, no disrespect, but when I sent you these six books, I would not have picked that as the one that you read straight through. Uh, when he says I read it quickly, I couldn't put it down, is what he means. It took, it still took a while. Um, uh, but, yeah, no, I really, really enjoyed reading this book. And um, for... And, I mean, does Malcolm Turnbull need to read this book? Yes. Yes, he does. It's called Burnout. <laughs> uh, but it's... It's about the end game for fossil fuels. And what I really liked about it, um, it's, it is difficult to find compelling reading on climate change and fossil fuels to, to be engaged in a book from beginning to end. But I just thought this guy, Dieter Helm, whose work I'd heard of him but I'd never read his work, uh, just... Basically arguing, it's really quite simple. He says, the revolution is coming. Fossil fuels are not going to exist. The world in 30 years' time is going to be as different as it was 30 years ago. And when you, that's how he introduces it. Um, and he, he, take, he took me on a journey where I actually was able to find a way to feel vaguely optimistic about the biggest anxiety of all. Um, and except, again, when I came back to Australia and, you know, he talks about the innovation, the science, what is going to save us? We are going to be okay. The planet isn't going to... It isn't going to end. Um, and then I just thought, I, I just want Australia to be at the front of this. You know, we could be at the front of this. We could be doing things... Um, in science, in technology, in energy, uh, that we're, we used to be capable of. And for that reason, it's an incredibly important book for the Prime Minister. Um, but really, it, it made sense to me too. The arguments that he puts in this book <coughs> made sense to me. He said, there's going to be a lot that I get wrong, but he bases it on three very high probabilities um, one of them being that fossil fuels on the way out. Yeah. Well, and I think what's... I mean, uh, pretty much every year we've held this event for the last four years, someone at the end has put up their hand and said, why isn't there a book about climate change? Uh, and I say because, frankly, no-one this year has put, published a book about climate change that said anything particularly new. You know, lots of people keep publishing books saying climate change is a problem and we need to kind of change our ways and all of that. And it's kind of like, yeah, 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 I know that. Tell me something I don't know. So what does this book tell... What did it tell me that I didn't know? And the answer is it, it started with that premise that said, look, governments one way or another are starting to kind of get vaguely serious about regulating emissions. Um, secondly, um, there are a bunch of technology changes that are clearly now happening in particular the cost of renewable energies is falling and falling very fast. And it's a pretty fair bet that they're going to keep falling. So solar and wind in particular are a lot cheaper than they used to be. And then thirdly, we have the electrification of a whole series of, of things that currently require various kind of fossil fuels, not least, in fact, most importantly, cars and, and also trucks. And when you put those together and say, OK, let's just assume that all of those things keep going, and by the way, that is a very, very good assumption. Where do we wind up in 20 or 30 years? What things are, are, are probable? 
Uh, and so he both goes through the geopolitics of that. And it's kind of, well, in that world, not that many people are going to be buying oil. Ironically, as he points out, it is most likely that oil will become cheap. But on the other hand, nobody much will want to buy it. Um, very bad news, by the way, for Saudi Arabia. As he points out, probably pretty bad news for Russia as well. Um, and, and as soon as you think about it in those terms, you realise, yeah, yeah, of course that's going to have those kind of geopolitical implications and, you know... And mixed news for China. I thought that uh, what he wrote about China was, was really, really interesting, that he suggests that people have just been sort of carried away a bit with China as always ending up somehow the winner in, the, in this century. But he actually makes a really good case that it'll be the USA. Because the USA is ironically, even through everything that's happened, done an awful lot of the innovation um, and uh, probably wind up doing quite well. Um, and then also goes through and thinks about what are the implications for companies. It's kind of, well, you know, the smart strategy for an oil and gas company, dig it up as fast as you possibly can and sell it as fast as you possibly can because chances are there may not be a lot of buyers in 15 years' time. Don't worry about the reserves. Don't worry about, um, you know, the fact that that might depress the price in the short run because you're not going to be able to sell anything in 15 years. And actually that's one of the dangerous scenarios of the book is that it encourages even more emissions in the short to medium run. Um, uh, interesting story for, for electricity companies in this world um, with a lot more wind and solar. Inherently, it's a much more distributed grid. Any way you think about it, this is going to be an awful lot of disruption. Um, and uh, only very agile companies tend to survive those kinds of disruptions. If you think about you know, which companies survived some of the um, IT disruptions from you know, 20 years ago, and really, IBM is one of the very, very few companies that survived uh, and um, it completely reinvented its business model, got out of making big machines and got into consulting. Um, and it's about the only one that made it through. The, the whole, he, he takes you through the little history of it, doesn't he? Yeah. How, how poor big companies are at, at redirecting. Um, when you think about how the words innovation and agility have completely disappeared, from our dear leader's lips, uh, uh, it was like, you know, something was just switched off. Um, and yet it's at the very, very moment that we really do seriously uh, need to be talking about these things. Well, and, and I think innovation, not only in the sense of Australia inventing things, important as that is, but even more so in terms of Australia adopting things, um, which is, you know, that's the big part of innovation is, well, if there's better ideas out there in the rest of the world, and chances are 98% of the good ideas are not, in fact, invented in Australia. We're only 2% of the world economy. Um, so the big game is adopting those 98% and, and, you know, hiding our heads in the sand and hoping this is all going to go away is probably not a great strategy. The, um, we heard about power companies and, the, the, you know, power was such a big issue politically this year. And when I read this book, I just thought what a missed opportunity it was for actually Malcolm Turnbull to be able to get a discussion of climate change back, to, to couple it with, to talk about energy and how we're going to get it and how we're going to get it long down the track. But instead, it, it was all about the price. Uh, and the cost of it to, and to a household. And, yep. kind of and in a way that uh, 
people's anxieties are greater than that. They're, it's important. What power costs is important. Uh, but it was a missed opportunity in terms of uh, perhaps looking uh, longer range and maybe... I mean, maybe he can't say innovative anymore because people just roll their eyes. Yeah. Uh, to be very slightly fair, I think that the national energy um, uh, scheme... Uh, the national... Um, uh, NEG, what is it? Guarantee, thank you. National Energy Guarantee actually has inside it, and heaven knows it's very sketchy, um, but it does have inside it a little bit of that very forward thinking. Um, you know, how do we regulate the grid in a world where most of the power is generated at zero marginal cost? Um, inherently, that means a quite radical shift to the way that the market works. That is a, country, a problem that countries around the world are grappling with, and no one's really solved that one. So we're kind of making up the regulation as we go here. And, and it's not a big deal in Europe because in the, the reality is the European grid is interconnected, and so most of um, the European grid remains with a marginal cost. Um, and uh, essentially backs itself up. Australia is one of, uh, particularly South Australia, is one of the places in the world that has really a very high proportion, which is zero marginal cost, and that does require a different kind of regulation. So, you know, at least we kind of started talking about that problem, um, and, and I think they're absolutely right to say that um, uh, security of supply in this kind of slightly different world and of costs and so on is a genuine issue and does need to be thought through and... Yeah, we are slightly making it up. But but sort of pretending that, on the other hand, we are going to hit our emissions target um, with electricity only doing its share of the, um, uh, of the reductions, even though on any analysis, um, reducing emissions in electricity is way lower cost than most of the rest of it, doesn't look as though we're really facing up to the problem. The other thing that in, in his analysis, he goes through the, the main countries, the, the producers and the consumers and how they'll be affected, is how much um, history matters in how countries... So Saudi Arabia are in a far worse position for absorbing what's going to happen than, say, Iran. And simply because Iran... Uh, has a much, much deeper history uh, and covers a lot more ground in in trade, in culture, in all these different areas uh, without simply relying on one thing by a you know, massive extended royal family. It's really, really interesting. And that, and that history in terms of understanding, look, this is how it's played out in the past. You can probably expect these kind of things to play out the same way. Yeah, and so Australia too should look to its history as well as into the into the future. We're so just stuck, you know, in today, every day. So now we're going to talk about something that breaks the mould, um, which is uh, Angela Pippos's book about taking a hammer to sexism in sport. Oh, gosh, I enjoyed this. <laughs> I really did enjoy this. Um, Angela is a Crows supporter, and that's the only thing about her I don't admire, because um, I am a tiger. And uh, I wouldn't want to gloat. That would be undignified. But, <laughs> but sport is all about timing, isn't it, really? And this book, you just talk about good timing, uh, that she has um, published this at a time where we have, of course, witnessed uh, in an area of, of Australian life that is just 
Um, Angela, this is a quote. She says, if sport were a cake, the filling would be chest hair. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and yet in this most male bastion, um, we've actually seen a leap, a leap in the past 12 months uh, that we, you know, politics is just unable to achieve and the working world of Australia is unable to achieve for women. Yeah. Well, I, I suspect... Um there might have been just a little bit of good luck. Um, so from what I can make out, um, Angela started writing this book around about 2014, 2015. And the first half of the book is about, you know, how essentially women have got a raw deal out of sport for a long time and that this genuinely matters. That the reality, like it or not, um, is that sport is a big part of Australian culture. And if sport really only applies to half the population, um, that's a wee bit of a problem. Um, and she documents all of those issues in terms of the, um, the social barriers, the cultural barriers, the institutional barriers um, to women in sport. Uh, she talks about the frustration of all of that, the, so the, the chicken and egg argument about the way that, you know, supposedly no one's interested in women's sport, therefore nobody actually plays women's sport, therefore there's no star players for women's sport, and because no one's interested, therefore nobody televises women's sport. And because no one televises it, no one's interested in women's sport. And around you go, around and around and, and around. And not just in professional sports. She talks to about just women participating in sport. We all know, because thanks to Rebecca, that they're just too exhausted. Uh, <laughs> uh, because they can't get childcare and um, all the other... Uh, things that need to happen to actually go and play netball or whatever it is that, you know, is fancied on a Wednesday night. That wouldn't be my cup of tea. But um, I want to read one little quote, if I can. Um, I have to put my emergency glasses on that I'm uh, to, to read this. I just found this hilarious. Some of you might know some of these names. Um, this was when Australian rules returned to the Adelaide Oval and Angela went to check out the redevelopment of the ground. She's having a wander around. It's all exciting. And then she, she noticed um, the names of all the... So there's the, the revamped... Um, here, here it is. I'd read about Barry Robran becoming the first football great honoured with a bronze statue at Adelaide Oval. Terrific, I thought. You can't argue with three medals. He's one of four football icons to be recognised in this way at the revamped Oval. The others are Russell Elbert, Ken Farmer and Malcolm Blight. Statues have also been commissioned to honour four South Australian cricketers. Darren Lehman, Jason Gillespie, George Giffen and Clem Hill. Max Bashir, the South Australian Football League's longest serving, serving president, uh, is one of the five, five men with a pavilion named after him in the Eastern Stand. The others are Gavin, Jack, Foz and Mark. The chapel stand recognises brothers Ian, Greg and Trevor. There's also the Bob Quinn Gate, adjacent to the Clary Grimmett Gate, the William Mogary Room, the Graham Corns Deck, the Rick Davies Stadium Club Bar, the Neil Curley Members Bar and the Lindsay Head Terrace. The names Bob Hank and Len Fitzgerald adorn the two bridges that link the southern and eastern stands, while John Cahill and Andrew McLeod have a room each in the southern stand, a stab pass from the Peter Kerry Bar. Are you detecting a trend? The John Halbert. <laughs> 
toilet room is located in the Eastern Stand with a section for the John Platten Bar. And on the ground level is the Gary McIntosh Bar. And then there's the Lee Wicker League Room too. I'm surprised they didn't commission a giant set of brass testicles to hang above the entrance. <laughs> How good is that? <laughs> um, it is terrific. And, and, but then she also picks up the cultural pieces around this. There's a, there's a lovely bit where she talks about research. When you, when you go and ask children, so 10-year-olds, what is it like to run like a girl? They say, well, you kind of run fast like a girl. But when you ask adolescents, what is it to throw like a girl? They start bringing in ideas of awkwardness and so on. And so, the, I mean, it just shows the cultural patterning of this. And it clearly runs deep. Um, and it's worth, on the other hand, that's kind of like part one of the book. And then part two of the book is, you know, quite a lot has changed. Um, you know, in 2016, there was a women's AFL game that was televised and a million people watched it. You know, that's not niche anymore. That's a lot of people. Um, and they all, you know, voluntarily, without having, you know, lots of things pushed at them, you know, watched a game and loved it, clearly. Um, absolutely. It, even if those women were paid about, you know, 10%, I think, of what their male counterparts were. I mean, it's, it's interesting, this, and I, I sort of don't really know how to feel about it. You know, you know, you know I'm so thrilled about uh, women's football and I can see what the AFL are doing in trying to nurture it they're not but they're not paying equal wages at what point in 2017 why does it have to be part time for the women and and so and yet they've come this far they will go on with it they've done something that politics has been completely incapable of doing and it hasn't been easy I think for the AFL I think they've been as as Angela writes about they've been really courageous they detected something they picked it up totally supported it and have a plan well um, and of course there have been sports in which women's pay has started to increase it's still got a long way to go tennis of course actually got there a long time ago um, essentially because the players more or less went on strike and said we're not going to play in the US Open uh, unless we get paid as much as the men. Uh, and that, it's not universal across the tennis, but it's pretty close. Um, uh, there's a number of other sports which have at least made progress over the last couple of years, uh, and at least we have, you know, a full-on AFL draft for, women's, uh, for women. So, you know, progress. And I think one of the really interesting things is in a world in which, you know, the common complaint is, you know, we're not making progress on any of this stuff um, in terms of either policy change for, from economic purposes or for social purposes. How did this happen? And I think that that's where the book is also really strong in terms of just telling that those stories about, well, how did it happen? And the answer is, well, look, partly it was a bit of social institutional pressure that said, you know, it's really just not good enough to have an AFL commission where everybody is a man. You've got to have a token woman. So they got a token woman. Uh, and, but, of course, it was Sam Austin. She actually, you know, took it, did a great job. And then they said, actually, one's probably not good enough either. So, so they wound up with Linda DeSalle. And then they talk about how they basically raised the fact that there was no women's competition and, no, you know, the AFL was not taking women's uh, football seriously. Literally, every board meeting they showed up to until the rest of the commission kind of got with the program. 
Uh, and then today you're in a world in which 25% of, of the children doing Auskick are women. Now that's got a way to go, but it's still it's a transformation. And it's a transformation that happened partly because there was social pressure to put more people on the sort of governing uh, bodies. Partly that led to more women um, getting roles um, inside the organisation. Partly because there were women who'd been playing football for a really long time who just you know, kept working away to, to make it possible. And I think it shows if you really believe in a cause and if you plug away at it for long enough, it is surprising that you can make some progress. Yeah. I, I guess we've become accustomed to not expecting progress. I, I well, well, let's let's remember how far we've come. Yeah. So, so can I can I That's read? It's easy for you to say. But John. let me remind you just how far mm. we've come. So, in two thousand and eight, somebody wrote. I'm guessing. Well, in fact, it was a man. You can find out who it is if you go and yeah. read the book. He who wrote that um, uh, the true spectacle and essential attraction of the game. I Australian rules requires 36 exquisitely fit, testosterone-pumped men attempting to subdue each other with speed and skill. Football is men's business. It is quite possibly sacred men's business. And the attempts to feminise it are ideologically driven, nasty and envious attempts at a weird kind of retribution which could prove absolutely counterproductive. He wasn't joking. He was yeah, deadly no, he was serious. Not joking. Mm. Um, yeah, I, see, that doesn't surprise me like it surprises you. Yeah, okay, okay, yeah. okay. Point taken. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the other thing that Angela does in, in, in the book is, and in this Weinstein uh, sort of fervour, um, you wonder when it's going to hit the particularly Australian sporting world. She, she tells one great story in there about her own just horrendous experience. Um, and, you know, you think about Angela's own working life. She's been decades in, you know, she was one of the first female journalists in sport, uh, going into locker rooms, all of that sort of stuff. Um, she, she brings a great insight to this book, but, but she, she, she deconstructs things too on a quite subtle level. And um, so, for example, you know, the, the professional sportsman who gets caught unfortunately gets caught. It's always, unfortunately, I got caught. Uh, and then says, it wasn't my intention to be disrespectful. It was just a joke. And I'm sorry if someone was disturbed by it. And uh, I, I just, um, she, she points out these, uh, these subtleties, I suppose. I mean, they're not subtle for many people, but, but you know, it, it matters that these things are being uh, pointed out, not to mention that we still have grand, grand prix with, you know, women running around in bikinis yeah. and we, sponsored by a state government. We, Why is that okay? Yeah. We can do a lot better. But no, I think no, I mean, we must do better. What's, what's mm -hmm. courageous about this book and what's really, I think, helpful is to say, you know, things have got better and this is how people have made them better and um, that's important because, you know, there is yep. a lot to be pessimistic about um, and, and so having role models for change yep. is in itself really important. Yeah. It's not a, it's it's obviously incredibly important to have role models for women in sport. It's also important to have role models for change. 
Absolutely. And maybe that takes us to the next one. Wow. Well, I, um, <laughs> I uh, look, this next one, this is, you know, my, my book of the year for me, The Enigmatic Mr Deacon. I love this book. I keep going back to it. Um, I've talked about it more than any other book I've read uh, this year. Um, it, it was, it's one of those books, you know, when you look at your bookshelf and you feel like there's a hole in it just waiting for a book to be written and put in it. And a lot of great things have been written about Alfred Deacon over the years, um, but nobody has put all the different parts of him together until now. And there are three really interesting parts, his public life, his private life and his fascinating inner life um, and uh, you know I really really hope Malcolm Turnbull reads this one yeah <laughs> um, so so what's interesting about Deacon I mean one thing that's really interesting and it's kind of a bit of a contrast to Pippos is um, the way that um, although Deacon was um, uh, quite um, he was quite a figure in his own time, a huge figure in his own time, but um, he was never a mate. He didn't swear and rarely drank. He didn't play organised sport, nor fight in the Great War, was unfailingly courteous, and although many loved him, he always held himself a little aloof. And in fact, he was a reluctant politician and I, I've been thinking about this for a while that you know how they drag the speaker in the who's meant to be reluctant we should just stop that we should start finding dragging our prime ministers in and we should find leaders that are reluctant Deacon didn't want to be prime minister most of the time that he was prime minister and I think that's a big part of why he was able to choose, believe in things um, and, and follow them through. And whilst, you know, much of the Australian settlement, of course, has come undone, things that he was um, very supportive of, uh, the two greatest achievements of Deakin are the two very things that are just driving Malcolm Turnbull absolutely bonkers this year, which the Federation and the High Court. Uh, and, uh, you know, they got it, they, they did it so well. They did the, the constant in, in so many ways. Um, and they did it so that it couldn't be undone. And it's, a, you know, the idea of something being that lasting, it's marvellous. Well, that and I think on, on a, any number of policies, some of which haven't survived, but many of which survived for a very, very long time. Um, what's interesting about Deakin is that most of the time he was prime minister of a minority government. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, um, he, he writes about the way that he in many ways preferred that because it meant that when change happened, it had to be change that was essentially across parties it was therefore change, as he put it, distilled from the wisdom of Australians. Um, and uh, it was change that was likely to last precisely because it had been forged out of a compromise. Yep. And he I called it organic, didn't he? Yeah. And I think there's something to be said for that kind of desire for a compromise in which kind of everybody gets, you know, something. And most people get most of what they want. Uh, and we all accept that we've kind of got to do this together uh, and that um, staying together 
is actually more important than, you know, unalloyed victory. And I think a lot of our politics seems to have got to the point where it's about winning rather than about a policy compromise that we can all live with and that will leave us all better off. Um, and I think what Deacon's, you know, his entire life work was about statecraft. And, and Judith kind of talks about statecraft. And it's kind of, it's a, the first time I read it, it was kind of, crikey, that's an old-fashioned word. Mm. Um, and, and then I thought, geez, should be a, a new-fashioned word. There's nothing wrong with statecraft. It's a beautiful word. Um, the, the other thing that Deacon really got was understanding that there was often only a window for ideas and policies, um, that it had to be a, a moment in time. And if you missed it, it might be gone forever. And that's something, I mean, certainly Malcolm Turnbull, if you think of the two things he's said he's been most passionate about in his life are the republic and climate change, um, he ought to sort of start understanding you've got to take your moments uh, because they might not come back again for a long time. Hmm. The other thing I think is terrific is, um, you know, Judith is a fantastic historian, so you can always kind of smell and 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 feel the the, the time you're in. Uh, and for me, this was a lovely window into late nineteenth century Melbourne. Mm. Um, I, I, you know, you kind of hear about all of those sciences and mediums and spiritualism, and you think, geez, that was pretty weird. You know, everyone kind of sitting in a room and holding hands and hoping that you know the the dead were going to speak to them. You know, what was that all about, and what were respectable people doing? And then you realise actually, the holding hands and kind of talking to the dead sort of thing was not the point. In fact, the point was that it was a way of people coming to talk about ethics and values, that's most of what they talked about, um, in a way that wasn't explicitly religious and wasn't controlled by the existing churches. And it was kind of, uh, for me, that was a real insight, that that's what was going on. And, and seen through that lens, you know, the, the, the enormous fashion for spiritualism in the late 19th century makes a lot more sense. Mm. And just a sort of intellectual depth to it that you certainly don't see in... Well, certainly in public yeah. uh, debates now. His uh, most common prayer was, and, you know, if you're going to have one and be Prime Minister, was, oh, Lord, show me the way. <laughs> uh, you know, rather than a sense of it... I mean, I think what Australians are sensing now is that everything's just about politicians. And this reminds you of a time where actually people didn't feel that way. Um, it, you know, everything was different. Well, it was very different. I mean, one of the fantastic things, of course, about Deacon's life is that whilst um, uh, a minister and indeed a prime minister, he was busy simultaneously writing for the London media about Australian politics using a pseudonym. <laughs> <laughs> um, and indeed, the enigmatic Mr Deacon is how described he himself. described himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Using this pseudonym for the for the um, for the uh, London papers, so it was a different time. It's a bit. He wrote difficult. two books on India. Yeah. You know, he also had three daughters, like Tony Abbott. So Tony Abbott should read it too. <laughs> uh, I think. I mean, they do. I, you know, I, I, one thing I don't understand is why the Liberal Party shun him in the way that they do. I mean, they. I've never understood it. They. They. They don't have handfuls of heroes. Um, you, you can never have too many, I guess, as a political party. 
And Deacon is somebody I think, again, I just see so many missed opportunities. I sort of think of Malcolm Turnbull as an intelligent, urbane, educated man. And there are opportunities that he's missed even in this citizenship drama where he at least could have cracked a joke that referred to Deacon or showed that he had a sense of history, showed that he had a sense of respect, but we didn't get it necessarily perfect for the times, but how well it has served us. There's nothing like that anymore. You see in Deacon's letters to, you know, some guy he's met and known for one week who's from America, a, a richer, deeper sense of culture um, than, than we get now. Well, to be fair, we're not reading Malcolm's private letters um, at the moment. No. So, and 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 he would That's not be the true. would that, not be the first politician yeah. that was deeper in in private than he was that in public. Is, no, that Although, is Although, to be slightly yeah. fair, one of the things that's really interesting about Deacon is that in public he was quite deep. Yes. And he was prepared to talk about ethics and values and what he cared about and why he cared about it. Well, that's how they did it, isn't it? That's how they got federation. I mean, you just... I just look at Deacon and I think, wow, imagine federation trying to do something like that today. I mean, just forget it. Forget it. We can't agree on anything anymore, let alone something that complicated that was done through speech in halls and town halls and rooms like this, but without microphones, travelling all over the country, persuading people, persuading people of something they thought they didn't want, something well, great. And, and, and clearly Deacon was great at that business. And here's another thing that was really different, um, maybe not so much to Australian politicians but to others. There's a lovely scene um, that, that Judith paints of... Deacon um, in a regional Victorian area, I can't remember where it was, um, uh, basically rousing up the crowd um, against um, one of his opponents who was in the room. And about three-quarters of the way through, he suddenly realised that he's really roused the crowd. Oh, this is at and Bendigo this, Australian Natives yeah, Association. And, or is and, it at Ballarat? I, yeah, okay. Yes. I, and, and that this could get very, very ugly. And so he realises this and he deliberately just quietly starts leading them in a slightly different direction and they kind of, their focus goes away from this opponent and it all ends very happily. And he writes about how that was a real wake-up call to him and that he had to be careful about power and not misuse it. Mm, mm, mm. Amazing just to sense all that and be able to act on it and uh, and do it in the right way. It, it is... Uh, the, the level of detail in this book is... Uh, it's it's really, really wonderful. And it's, it's one that you can read right through and then keep dipping back into. So, Sally, that's the list. What would you have picked? Oh, what would I have... Um, well, I would have put... Um, I, I would have put the winners that we chose for the... For Having the, read 150. That's, that's <laughs> right. Uh, for the... Um, uh, although, I mean, it's a different purpose, isn't it? Yeah. This is for, the, you know, the Prime Minister's um, actual reading. Uh, but I would put them both on. Anyway, the, the uh, Australian History Prize went to Elizabeth Tynan, who 
probably, you know, she's not a especially well-known um, writer in Australia, but she's written a book called Atomic Thunder about Maralinga. And again, you know, really, really well-researched, but with great resonance to today. And Quicksilver, which was um, Nicholas Rothwell's book on Northern Australia, um, two wonderful books. Um, so, but that'd be eight. That'd be quite a lot, wouldn't it, for one summer? For in, in, indeed. And so, what we also do, and it's in the back of the publication, which, by the way, if you want to send it on to your friends, you can find online on the Grattan website. We also put together a wonks list, um, which, of course, in fact, probably does apply to Malcolm and Lucy, um, uh, who are both people notoriously um, uh, interested in policy. Um, so, Alan Gingell's Fear of Abandonment, which is essentially about um, Australia's um, foreign policy and the kind of attitudes that have driven it um, over the last decades. Um, Cordelia Fine's book, Testosterone Rex, which is essentially um, uh, an intervention into the debate about um, how uh, our minds are shaped about gender. Um, uh, a book, uh, Rethinking the Economics of Land and Housing. Uh, for anyone who's kind of working in the housing space, this is the kind of big book of the year, um, thinking about um, the way that land is actually a very different kind of thing to other kinds of assets and to income, and that you have to think about it very differently. Um, James Meek's Summerdale to Garber meets my polish is not very good, um, uh, which is about the way that a Cadbury factory moves from the UK to Poland and basically everybody winds up unhappy about it, including the people in Poland. Um, but it's a fantastically beautiful read. Um, uh, Seth Stephen Davidits's um, Everybody Lies, um, Big Data, New Data and What the Internet Tells Us About um, Who We Really Are. So that's about um, the way that uh, people... Um, uh, tell Rebecca Huntley one thing and then you go and find out what they actually put into search engines and it tells you what they really think. <laughs> They're not necessarily quite the same. Um, uh, essentially the entirety issue uh, um, of the Mianjin Quarterly Winter Edition, um, it was just one of those things where there's three or there's any number of really great pieces um, uh, in that particular journal. Uh, and then That's finally, a very handy list. John. Yeah, and finally, um, Yokai, Yokai Benkler um, and Breitbart-led right-wing media ecosystem altered broader media agenda, which is a bit of a mouthful, and it's even more horrifying when you discover that that was the headline voluntarily chosen by the Columbia Journalism Department. <laughs> so heaven knows what they're teaching their students, but it is a completely brilliant analysis of what kind of media different people with different political opinions in the US read and the way that that's kind of coming apart. Totally amazing understanding what's going on in the US. So, so that's for the wonks and there may be um, one or two of those uh, in any given Grattan audience. Um, I should wrap up at this point. So Firstly, um, again, an enormous thanks to Lucille Danks, Carmela Chivers and Owen Elmsley and indeed all of the Grattan staff for their work in reading and recommending tonight's list. Uh, thank you to the authors um, who are here tonight, uh, Judith Brett, Rebecca Huntley and Angela Pipoffs. Can you stand up so that people can see um, where you are? I'm hoping you're all here. Oh,
thank you for your work. We have enjoyed reading your books and we hope that lots of other people here um, and elsewhere do. Um, and uh, I have never written a book, but I've got close enough to people who have to know it's no small thing. Uh, and um, your readers are very grateful. Um, uh, thank you again to Sarah Slade and the State Library staff. We're looking forward to the 2018 calendar of policy pitch events and partnering with the library for another year. Um, thank you to you, the audience, um, without whom, of course, this event wouldn't have, it wouldn't happen. Um, although I suspect Sally and I would have had a lovely time, nevertheless. <laughs> I, I think I could talk to you anywhere, anytime, John. Um, yeah. uh, the list, as I mentioned, is online. Um, and to purchase the books, um, you can either go to um, any one of the Readings bookstores across Melbourne or online, um, or you can join us upstairs for a drink or, and a nibble. You're all welcome um, after this event. Um, if you just go straight outside, slightly to the left, um, and up the stairs, and um, uh, drinks and nibblies will be served there. And you will also find a reading stand where you can purchase the books. So thank you all very much for coming. It's been a complete pleasure to have you here, and we look forward um, to seeing you at any number of Grattan events uh, in 2018. Thank you for a great 2017. Um, happy holidays, and we hope that you too find time to read a few books. Thank you. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.